Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 15 through 21. And we're just going to look at these few verses this morning. Um, just by way of a quick reminder of where we are in Ephesians uh, this morning. Um, we have been trying to unpack this book over the last couple of months, and Paul has been reminding us of our new identity in Christ. And he's really been trying to drive that theme of in him home to us. And that's really been the, the big theme up until this point. In, in chapters 1 through 3, he's retelling the story of what happened um, in Jesus' life and, and God's decision to save self-centered people like you and me, and then permanently commit himself to love them. He did this by becoming human and creating a new redeemed family called the church, where he now takes up his personal residence by the Spirit. And Paul wants us to see that we have a new identity. It doesn't matter what you used to be. It doesn't matter who you were before Christ. That once you are in him, you are something new. You are something different. In the same way, when, when he's describing it's not Jew or Gentile, it's this third new thing. It's the same way with our identity. It, it doesn't matter where we come from or what we've done or what's been done to us. When we are in him, we have a completely new identity. We, we are a new creation. You become a new kind of person. We talked about this last week, a, a holy person. And you are now distinct and, and set apart from your old life, your old identity. Not only that, you're beloved children, right? You're, you're children of the light, Paul says. And this brings us into chapter 5 where Paul has been laying out some parameters for living in this new identity. And he wants the readers to see what our new identity should look like. In other words, how it connects, how this new identity connects to our, our sex life, our, our money, our resources, our relationships with one another, our work ethic, our emotions. And this brings us to this paragraph that we are looking at this morning here in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. And this, this makes up one unit and serves as somewhat of a transition. So some of you may wonder, like, how, how do we decide where to stop and start? Some, sometimes it is just literally a content issue. There's just so much in so few verses. But what we try to do to the best of our ability is stay with the logical flow of his writing. In other words, paragraph by paragraph. Does that make sense? And so sometimes it's hard to see that in the chapters and verses, the way we have it broke out in our English Bible. Some of you have little subheadings that kind of help you uh, in your Bibles that, that kind of let you know, hey, transition's happening here. He's moving to something different. And so that, that's why this week I'm only going to be covering a few verses where last week it was a lot and next week it'll be a lot. But, but this week is one thought, one unit that, that Paul is trying to help us to see this morning. And I want to start by reminding you of something that we talked about last week. Paul, like a parent, has given these young Christians freedom by giving them parameters. Now, for many of us, that might seem contradictory, right? Because in our minds, most of us think freedom means no parameters, right? Freedom means I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, right? That. That's what in our mind we think of when we think of freedom. But in the Bible, that's not how freedom is viewed. In fact, doing whatever you want always leads to absolute ruin. Go, go back and look at the nation of Israel. Anytime they stopped listening to God and started doing whatever they wanted, it ended in destruction. It, it ended in complete chaos and ruin. So in the Bible, freedom is found by living within God's parameters. The more we live within God's parameters, the more freedom we discover, the more freedom we find. Hopefully you got a chance to talk about that a little bit in small group this week. 
But the example that I used last week that I kind of want to carry over to this week is, is the example of our parenting. We give our kids freedom in our houses and on our properties to play and explore. But, but there are certain places, right, that, that are off limits to them, right? When, when they're little, you know, maybe it's the knife drawer. That, that, hey, this is off limits to you, right? And, and it's not because we're these killjoy parents who don't want to give our kids freedom. It's quite the opposite. We want to protect our kids' freedom. We want them to continue to be able to explore the other 99% of the house and not hurt themselves on the knives. And as a matter of fact, as they continue to grow and mature, and they become teenagers, what, are, what do we do? We ask them, hey, could you get me a knife out of that drawer? What are we doing? We're teaching them how to handle a dangerous thing, freedom, carefully. Because now they're at an age in which they can understand, I don't pick it up by the blade end. <laughs> I don't run around with it. Right? And, and so... They are growing in their freedom so that even this place that was once off limits to them now, because of wisdom, because now they understand, they're able to access that. To later when they're teenagers and you're out of the house and they're making breakfast for themselves, they just go in the drawer, get what they need, do it. No big deal, right? Because as a parent, that, that's what we are trying to help our children to see is, is this idea of you have so much freedom, and Paul wants these new believers to understand and see the freedom they now have in Christ. To explore this world, to live this life. This is what he wants the Ephesians to see. And he's giving them parameters for their new identity so that they can enjoy their freedom. Right? For, for that kid in that house that's four or five years old and they find their way into the knife drawer, they're not going to enjoy their freedom if they're playing with those knives. And Paul knows that. And he, he wants them to understand that there are some things in your life that if you don't know how to handle them, they will wreck your life. And so as a cautious, caring, loving parent who wants to see these children grow up in the freedom that God has given them, he lays out a few parameters. But, but this means that a huge part of our day as Christians, a huge part of our day-to-day -day life is lived in absolute freedom. There, there's no rules bounding every second and every minute of every day. Paul says there, there's some areas and there's some places you need to be careful of, but the rest of it, you have been given so much freedom in Christ. And you can search the Bible all you want, and you're not going to find a detailed parameters list for how to live your day-to-day -day life. You're not going to find a guide for every minute and every second of every day. Paul says you have freedom, and you need to learn how to use that. Freedom. So Paul, in this paragraph... In these few verses, he wants to give us some guidance for how to use this freedom in our new identity. So it's a little short passage. So we're going to, y'all are doing a good job reading together this morning. I heard y'all. Hopefully I'll do a better job of, of leading this morning. So let's start in verse 15. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.
Remember, for Paul, all of these concepts tie together. And the question I hope to answer for you this morning is, how do all of these things that Paul just mentioned in these verses, how do they all tie together as one thought, as one unit? You see, as Christians, we, we know that we have parameters and where they are, but, but again, most of our life is lived in wide open freedom. And, and Paul wants to make sure that you have some guidance on how to make the most of that freedom that you have. So Paul's going to lay out three things for us in this section of Ephesians. He's going to talk about wisdom, discerning God's will, and being filled with the Spirit. Wisdom is the first one. Discerning God's will and being filled with the Spirit. And to Paul, each of these three things go together like building blocks. They're not these three distinct things, you need this and this and this, you're going to see that, that each one of them build upon each other if this sermon is successful. So look at verse 15. He starts by saying, as you approach this area of freedom, we have to be super intentional, right? Look carefully then how you walk. Paul's called us to walk. He's called us to walk with the Lord. But here in this section, talking about our freedom, he's telling us we've got to be very intentional. We've got to be very careful how we walk. We have to really think about our decisions because our decisions day to day matter. What you and I do in our day to day life has real meaning. And so we have this freedom that, that we've been given. And, and Paul's like, don't, don't just take it for granted. Make, make every moment count. Be intentional. Be careful. And then he gives us these three contrasting pairs. Hopefully you saw it as we were reading through the passage. Verse 15, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the second little contrasting pair that he gives us. And then third, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do, do you see the three pairs there? Paul is, is choosing these three topics carefully because, again, they're all connected. And Paul started this chapter by laying out parameters on sex and money and generosity and relationships. And these parameters help us to understand what it means to live within our new identity because each one of those things can really get us off track, right? The, the way we deal with our sexual life can really get us off track. The way we deal with our money and being greedy can really get us off track. The way we relate to others if we're not doing it in a kind, self-giving, not self-serving kind of way, it can really get us off track. And so Paul's like, hey, here, here's some parameters as you're growing in this Christian life. Watch these areas of your life. But once we know those parameters, how then are we to live the rest of our lives? To which Paul responds with these three contrasting pairs, wisdom, discerning God's will, and being filled with the Spirit. For Paul, what it means to be a wise person is waking up and learning as you go what the Lord's will is for that day. And if you're a wise person, able to know God's will, what that means is you need to learn how to be influenced by the Spirit. You need to learn how to let Him lead you and guide you into your day. Now, conversely, there are going to be three behaviors, really can be kind of summed up into two, but that will constantly stunt your growth. They're constantly going to set you back and keep you from maturing into the person that Christ wants you to be. And that's namely being stupid and getting drunk. Paul's just, you know, laying it out there, right? No sugarcoating this. Just don't be stupid, right? 
This is like the advice that your dad would give you sometimes. Just stop being stupid, right? Paul's, Paul's like, don't be stupid and don't get drunk. The, these two things are going to completely derail the freedom that you have in Christ. They'll ruin your life. So let's look at each one of these three contrasting pairs. First, he says in verse 15, don't be unwise, but wise. Now, for most of you, when I say the word wise, something popped into your head, right? You have this picture or you have this concept of what it means to be wise. And for most of us, the word wise maybe leads us to think someone who is smart, right? Or maybe you think of a person who has a lot of insight, right? They have a lot of insight to what's going on. And, and both of those elements are here in this word that, that Paul is using for biblical wisdom. But the Bible has a much more robust way, if you will, of, of looking at this idea and this concept of wisdom. And the Bible really talks about wisdom in some really different ways than I think most of us would think about wisdom. The Bible does talk about knowledge, right, being set up, being smart, but it also talks about having understanding, which is like having insight, being able to kind of figure things out. Um, but, but it also has words that correspond to those besides wisdom. But when it comes to wisdom, there, there's different words that, that Paul and even in the Old Testament, the Hebrew writers would use. And I, I think Paul here seems to be drawing on a text back in Exodus chapter 31 At this point in the story, for those of you who just don't have Exodus 31 memorized off the top of your head, um, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. They've been led out of slavery in Egypt by God, and he's now designing a, a dwelling place for himself amongst the people. And he says, starting in verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Why? In verse 4, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, that's an interesting connection here with wisdom. I have filled him with my spirit and all kinds of skills. And how do you know that this guy will be filled with divine wisdom? When he makes these artistic designs out of gold and bronze and silver, right? That's how you will know he has this divine wisdom. When the Bible talks about wisdom, it does not necessarily mean a smart person with a high IQ. It, it can mean that, but that's not the only thing that it can mean. Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you have to have a PhD to be an artist? <laughs> a lot of affirmation back there, right? You, you don't. You, you don't need to have some necessarily high level of degree to be an artisan. What do you have to have to be an artisan? Ability to create things. And, and that comes by practicing, right? Doing something over and over and over again. Here, God is taking a man, using his spirit to amplify his skills. But he already had those skills, right? It's not like God said, I'm picking this random dude who's never done this before, and now magically he's going to be able to make really cool things out of gold and silver. No, he, he's taking someone that already had some ability, and then his divine spirit is being poured out upon him, and that is then being amplified to make something beautiful and amazing, worthy of the house of the Lord. So wisdom in the Bible is a skill that you can cultivate by seeing the potential of something and then turning it into a work of art. Taking whatever raw materials you have to work with and then making something beautiful out of it. 
there are parameters, yes, but, but there's also freedom here to create something new. And, and that's, that's what Paul has in the back of his mind here. As he's writing this passage, God, God takes great joy in investing his own spirit in people's lives to inspire them to make something new. And Paul is saying as believers, as Christians who have the Spirit living inside of us, that God takes great pleasure in doing this with you too, with whatever it is you do. Right? This, this other 99% of your life that's not lived in church, but's lived out there, doing whatever it is that you do. God takes great joy and putting His Spirit upon you and then divinely inspiring you to do what you do. Notice, notice how Paul defines living wisely in verse 16. Because I know some of you are thinking, man, Dale, this, that doesn't sound very religious. Well, look, look at what he says in verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's not necessarily a religious thing. Right? He's not saying, make the best use of the time you're in your church services. No, he, he's saying, you've got all this freedom. You've got all these days that you can do whatever it is you want. But be careful and be wise. Allow God to pour out his spirit upon you. So that you can then make the most out of every opportunity that you are given. You see, there's so many areas of our life that God has given you freedom to live how you see fit. Where you work, what you do. There, there's so much freedom in that. God is not up there micromanaging all of those things in your life. Whether you go to work for company A or company B. Freedom. Whether you choose to build a house here or build a house there. Freedom. Whether you choose to make a blue knife or a red knife, Jason. Freedom. Right? All of these little decisions. Every, we have so much freedom. It's funny to me that we're like those little kids with the knife drawers. All we focus on is all the things we can't do. And we miss all the things that God has given us to do. I think that's a human thing, right? You can eat of any tree in the garden except. <laughs> well, man, that's the one I want to eat from. Forget all the other 99. I want that one. And Paul's like, look, in Christ you have so much freedom. Don't waste it. Be careful. Learn to make the most out of every day, every opportunity that God gives you. Because as Christians, we can be really stupid and we cannot make the most out of every day. And the good news is, you're still a Christian because God still committed to love you. <laughs> but you're just not being wise with what he's giving you. So how then should we live in the freedom of our new identity? Paul is urging us here to be wise. And to learn day by day how to make good decisions with our lives. Again, it's like a craft that we have, to, we have to work at it. We have to practice. We don't give up and beat ourselves up because we had one bad day. Do, do you know how many times artists throw away their canvases? How many times they paint over what they've done and start all over again? That's part of the process. It's okay. Just Keep moving forward. Keep making wise decisions with your life. Asking him to forgive you when you fail. This new identity we have gives us the perk of God's presence in our lives. Helping to remind us of our position in Christ. And helping us become more capable of making the right choices with our lives. This is not something that you're left to do 
on your own. Just like that craftsman had the divine spirit poured out upon him. God didn't leave it just up to him. God said, no, I'm going to help. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to partner with you. And now as believers, we have that same experience of God's presence with us, partnering with us to live our lives each day together. Paul wants us to see that there's a connection between being wise and making wise decisions with our lives and God's commitment to be personally present with us. So that's the first one. Don't be unwise, be wise. Now the second pair, don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. So if I'm wise, it means I'm cultivating this understanding that at any, on, on any given day, I can make decisions that are more in line or less in line with God's will. Now, the second pair seems to give people, I think, a really hard time. And I think the reason is because most of the people I talk to have a mistaken view of God's will. Take a moment in your mind right now, and, and if I were to ask you, how do you define God's will? Don't, don't say it out loud, just, just think for a second. How would you define that? Talking to people over the years, here's how I've heard them describe it. God's will is like some secret, hidden purpose that they need to figure out in their life. So they, they ask questions constantly like, is this God's will that I take this job? Or is it God's will that I'm dating this person so that I can get married? Is it, is it God's will that I ask her out? Is it God's will that I don't ask her out? Right? It's, it's like this, this mysterious thing. It, it's, all of these things kind of have this idea in common that it's like God's will is a point on the map. And it's my job to discover where the point is and then how to get there. But that's not how the Bible describes God's will. Paul talks about God's will several times. Sometimes he does it in terms of parameters of our new identity, like he did last week. Last week we talked about sexual immorality, right? You, you see it, you, you see, you never have to ask if it's God's will to have sexual relations outside with someone outside of the marriage covenant. You never have to ask that question. You're never going to have to go to God and wonder, right? Like, should I sleep with my boyfriend? Like, that, that's outside of God's will. You, you don't have to worry about that. You, you know that because he's put this parameter on your life. But most of the time, when Paul and other biblical authors talk about God's will, it has to do with figuring out what will please God. What in this moment will please God? And, and if there's no clear take job A, take job B, then you have a freedom to choose. Because both of them will please God. Let me go back and use the parenting example again. If, it, if it's a Saturday and the girls have gotten all their schoolwork done, all the stuff around the house that they were supposed to do, they've got all that done, and it's there free day, right? I'm not going to tell them then how to enjoy their Saturday. I'm not going to say to them, okay, you can go swim for an hour. And then it's, you know, for after that, you can go play video games for 30 minutes. And now you should go play with your cats for 33 minutes. And then you should go do your artwork for two hours. And then after that, go visit grandma. That would be ridiculous, right? I wouldn't do it because it's their free day. It's their time to make their decisions. All of these things would be my will for them. Right? To, to allow them to enjoy their free day. It didn't matter which activities they picked, which order they picked to do them in. It would all please me as their father. In many passages, this is how Paul explains our freedom and our new identity. In Romans 12, for instance, when our minds are renewed, he says that we will be able to cultivate the skill of discerning God's will. And some of you may be thinking, Dale, that, that sounds a lot easier to say than to actually do. You may even be thinking, how does that even work? 
And this is where the third contrast comes in. This is, this is how this all fits together. The third contrast, he says in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The word Paul uses here for debauchery literally means without restraint, without any boundaries, without any parameters. And, and I want to point out here, too, that Paul is contrasting these ideas. He's not making a comparison here. And, and you may be like, Dale, why are you bringing that up? Because there's a lot of traditions. Some of you may have come from these traditions that misinterpret this verse, and they don't see it as a series of contrasts, but instead they see this as a comparison. What Paul is not saying, not saying, is this. Don't get drunk with wine, rather get plastered in the Spirit. Right? That's the way a lot of Christians over the years have read this verse. And there are large groups of believers that think being filled with the Spirit will lead to acting and behaviors very similar to being drunk. And they have very strange and bizarre behaviors happenings, happening in their worship services. I have been to them. It is interesting. That is not what Paul is saying here. Okay? He, he's been contrasting clearly all the way through. Don't be wise, unwise, be wise, don't be foolish, understand what the Lord's will is, don't get drunk. Let me contrast that with being filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's different. It's a completely different kind of behavior. The only connection between the two, and the reason why Paul is, is using these two, is because both of these things require some kind of outside influence to happen. You can, you can be wise and unwise on your own, right? But you can't be filled with the Spirit on your own. To, to get drunk or to be influenced by the Spirit means that there is something outside of yourself that is influencing you, right? That's the thing both of these have in common that are being contrasted. So Paul starts out by first using the example of not getting drunk. One of the ways to be unwise, one of the ways to be stupid, is to live your life drunk, right? That, that's about as foolish as you can get. One of the main reasons people drink regularly is because thinking about their life is just too painful. So it's just easier to open up this bottle and forget Paul wants us to see that our, our new identity and our newfound freedom, there are all kinds of influences that we will want to avoid in this world. Especially any influence that will impair us in any way. Because when you are impaired, you're no longer able to make good decisions or to discern the will of God. Now, let me give you a quick rundown of the background on alcohol in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible will you find alcohol being prohibited, and you won't find anywhere where it says that drinking it is a sin. It's not there. Instead, you'll find the opposite. Alcohol is used to amplify the celebrations in our lives. You see Jesus even turning water into grape juice. I, I mean wine right? At the celebration wedding in Cana. Some of you grew up in the church and you know what I'm talking about. You, you were told that's not really wine, it was grape juice. But these people at the party said it's the best grape juice they ever had. Um, <laughs> that being said, there, there are just as many passages that while they don't prohibit alcohol, they absolutely speak to the overuse of alcohol, just like this one. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul is talking about alcohol in the context of being wise and unwise, right? Because alcohol is something you have to be very, very wise with. You see, for some of you, enjoying a bottle of wine is a way of celebrating with your family over a meal for a birthday. And yet, for some of you, that same behavior might be utterly foolish and destructive because of your personal backstory of addiction and alcoholism. It can also be about timing, right? Some points in your life you may be able to celebrate with a little alcohol. 
But other times, when you find yourself in a tough season of unemployment or illness, it would not be wise to partake in any alcohol because you don't want to think about your problems anymore. And it's too easy to pick up another and another and another. This is exactly what Paul is trying to get us to get at by focusing on being an outside influence. Now, I don't have to go into great detail. I think most of you know what alcohol does to a person, but just quickly on a surface level, it affects this little part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. This is an important part of our brain. Uh, it helps us to do decision-making, like, you know, make, like, look into the future. If I do this, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, right? Um, those of you who are raising boys, um, yeah, they don't have one, right? It's, it comes much later in life, right? You, you have this little girl who's like, oh, I'm not going to do that because that's going to hurt. And then this little boy's like, hey, you know, like they don't have that part of their brain. So it, it develops later in their life, right? And so what alcohol does is it inhibits that part of the brain. And so it inhibits your ability to be wise and to think three steps ahead of, if I do this, then this will happen, and then this will happen, Right? So, so you, you tell yourself, like, oh, it's okay. I know I've had a lot, but I can, I've, I've driven home a hundred times. Like, I can do it with my eyes closed. Yeah, right? It, it inhibits that part of your brain. Now, not only that, if you read the science and study the science, over the long term, it literally makes you stupid. Literally. Like, it, it takes your cognitive ability away from you. So long-term use... Over a period of time, that's what happens to you. So there, there's, there's some pretty serious effects of alcohol on our brains. And, and Paul is like, look, I, I, I don't want you getting drunk and being stupid. Right? This is bad combinations for someone who is living out this new identity in Christ. Paul's point is because we have this new identity in Christ and because we have all of this newfound freedom, we have to say no to any influences that are going to make me less of the person that God is calling me to be. For some of you, that may be alcohol. So Paul says, don't get drunk. For some of you this morning, though this, this may be one of many other influences that inhibit your ability to know God's will. It could be alcohol, but it could also be marijuana or prescription pills or vaping or whatever. And, and as your pastor, I just want to encourage you this morning to examine your life. Because the reality is, some of you drink too much. Some of you allow outside influences to control you way too much. You know who you are? I just want to encourage you that this will never be the way to mature in Christ. It's, it's never going to be a way forward in walking with God. And the best thing for you this morning might be to take a complete break from it for a while. If, you, if you're sitting there going, man, the Holy Spirit's kind of like, it's, it's, that's you, right? And you're like, I don't know if it's me. It's you. I don't know. Right? Here, let, let me give you some practical advice then. Take a break from it for a while. If it's not in control, if, if it's not overly influencing your life, take three months to a year off. Not, not because of some legalism, like I have to do this, because I want to make sure that Jesus is the primary influence in my life. That there's not some other outside thing influencing my day-to-day -day life. Now, the other side of Paul's comparison is to be filled with the Spirit. The New Testament uses the language of being filled with the Spirit, and then Paul says this is, is when Paul says this, he is not saying that you need to somehow get the Spirit back into your life as if you have somehow lost it. When the Bible talks about the Spirit, it, it's referring to how Jesus 
And God's presence is directly with you and in the midst of our church. The Spirit is also what wakes us up from sin and death, allowing us to see Jesus and to accept his offer of salvation. In Ephesians 1.13, it even said this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is said to be the seal of our salvation. We, we cannot unseal ourselves from him, right? So, so Paul is not saying, you've lost all the Spirit, you need to fill yourself back up with it, right? Like you got a leak somewhere. Instead, what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit is that we are being called into deeper and deeper experiences with Jesus. That Jesus' influence in our lives should continue to grow as he leads us into new experiences of his presence. And just when you think, I finally got the hang of this Christian life, then the Spirit shows you a whole other area of your life that is not being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit. So, so how does this work? And I want to close by sharing an illustration I heard a pastor use to describe what it looked like to be filled with the Spirit that really connected with me. And uh, I'm going to kind of take his illustration and apply it to me and then share it with you. But it was, it was so good, I couldn't figure out a better way to say this. Um, so because of my marriage, I am the best version of myself that I can be. And I'll tell you how I know this. A couple of times a year, normally, the girls go to the beach with their grandparents. Normally they go a few days at the beginning of the summer, and they go to a different beach the few days of the end of the summer. And I always look forward to this time. Because in my mind, it's like, all right, I'm going to get so much done. There are things I want to read, and I want to be able to read them because nobody's going to be talking to me, and it's going to be great, right? Just do whatever I want to do. And after about a day... I find myself miserable. The first day that they're gone, again, I'm excited, I'm doing all these things. But then I fall into some old habits of mine. And, and maybe it's, it's like, oh, I'm reading this book and I really like it and it's three in the morning and I should stop. No, I should, not. I should keep going. But I have things to do tomorrow. It doesn't matter. You'll be fine. Right? Stupid things. I start being foolish and unwise with my time. Things begin to be put off. And I, it's, like, it's like watching my normal productive life just kind of crumble to pieces. Without Amber, I'm not the best version of myself. There's something about her presence. We're still married. She's still my wife. She's just not there with me. There's something about her presence that changes me. And in my life, she makes me the best version of who I can be. Now, let me ask you an interesting question. Amber's presence in my life compels me to want to be more responsible, more productive, more generous, pretty much better in every way. And I can think back over the last 24 years that we've been married and how she has believed in me when I didn't even believe in myself sometimes and all the ways she has made me grow in my faith. So here's the question. Is that growing me? Is that changing me? Is it me or is it her? You see what I'm getting at here? I, I know for a fact that I have grown over the last 24 years. Is that just me making really good decisions? Or is it her and her influence over me? In some ways, that's really the wrong question to ask. The, in the, the reality is... Amber has a high degree of influence on my life because I allow her to have a high degree of influence on my life. Sometimes she's subtle. <laughs> like, hey, honey. And sometimes she's not so subtle. You're an idiot with her influence, right? But she always, to some degree, has a level of influence 
over my life and over me. But at the end of the day, I have to make the decision to come under her influence. It's me. I have to make the decisions. But at the same time, I would often not be motivated to make those decisions if she were not in my life to begin with. Do you see what I'm getting at here? This is, this is what I think Paul is getting at in this passage. If it weren't for the presence of Jesus in your life, speaking into your life, you wouldn't care what God's will was. You, you would just want to do whatever you think is right. No parameters. Instead, Paul wants us to open ourselves up to this new person who's trying to speak life into us. The spirit that convicts, helping us to see where our behavior strays outside of God's parameters. It's about opening ourselves up to this new relational presence. Paul wants us to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, allow this new presence to so fill your life that it's like having a new person in your life. Now, you may be asking, how does this work and how does he talk with me? Paul gives us the answer if we keep reading, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We just went through the first book of Psalms, and if you weren't around for that, um, just a quick reminder, that's the earliest songbooks that Christians used in worship. So Paul is saying the first way to hear God is through scriptures. But the second way is through each other, right? Addressing one another. When we as believers allow Jesus to have input into our lives through the Spirit, and you know that as a church that is alive with the presence of Jesus, when there is new music, and when we, when we, when we sing, we're, we're actually teaching each other. You guys do realize that. On Sunday mornings when we're singing, it's not just about worshiping God. That should be our first and primary motivation. But the songs that we are singing are also teaching us about God, and you're teaching one another because you may be here this morning and you're listening to this, the words that are being sung by all these other people. That's, that's teaching you about God. And Paul's saying that that's, that's one of the things that, one of the ways in which this works in our lives. You can also tell a church that's alive by, by a church that is constantly giving thanks. Notice how Paul does that himself in the next Verse, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father. Worship is not just about singing songs. It's about God's people being led by the Spirit to write new songs, new poetry, new works of fiction that are inspired by the Scriptures. These new works from age to age, give us a new language to describe what it means to be a Christian. I was just talking to a parent the other day that had never read the whole series of the Chronicle of Narnia, and, and now he was reading them with their kids. And you could tell that Lewis's fictional work, based upon Scripture, ha had begun to open up his minds in new ways to what God's Word said. This is why we must be continue to be wise and create works of art. We need this so that when we're having a tough day and we failed again, suddenly there's a scripture that pops into our mind or there's words from a song or, or words from a poem or words from a book that are pointing us back to Jesus. Or if you go to your DNA Bible study and as you're reading scripture, one of the guys or one of the ladies says something about a passage that, that hits you and you allow yourself this outside influence to speak to your heart, helping you to grow and change instead of being resistant to it, instead of arguing with it, you humbly submit yourself to one another. And this leads us to this last verse in 21. It's the last fruit or the last outcome of the Spirit in one's life. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's that we allow the community and the scriptures to speak into our life and that we are open to submitting and humbling ourselves. Left on our own in isolation, I think COVID has taught us we're going to make some pretty dumb decisions. Most of you probably have things in your house right now that you bought while sitting at home for months. And you're thinking, why did I buy that? We need the input of others into our lives. This is what Paul is getting at in this passage and how it all fits together. And I know some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, what does this submission to one another look like? Good news. He's going to tell us for most of the rest of the book of Ephesians what it looks like to submit to one another. What Paul's getting at in this passage and how it all fits together, he's laid out the parameters of what it means to be in Christ in the first part of this chapter. Then he gives us guidance on how to navigate this huge area of freedom. He warns us about dangerous influences and learning how to know God's will. And the way we do that is opening ourselves up to Jesus' influence and the Spirit in our life, that we would submit to them as the only way to grow. And I want to end and, and conclude this morning just by asking a couple questions that I just want you to think about. Are you even open to the presence of Jesus influencing your life? What about those areas of your life you don't want to change? Or in those areas of your life, do you think, or, or those areas of your life you, you think don't need to be changed? What if being filled with the Spirit meant exploring and filling those areas of your life? Are you open to that this morning? See, the way you answer those questions will tell you whether you are open to being filled with the Spirit or not. Let's pray, Father.